good morning. I want to acknowledge the popping in the uh, microphone. I've always learned to acknowledge the elephant in the room. This is an elephant for me. And so I'm going to try not to use words that begin with the letter P. Hey, it didn't pop. Oh. So watch for these powerful points. Hey, it didn't pop again. But let me go ahead and say before some of you say this, with all this hot air, this humidity should dry out and this should stop popping uh, any moment now. But we're glad you're here and uh, welcome our visitors. We're especially glad that you're here and pray that our time together will be uh, uplifting and God praising uh, together. I want to begin with, uh, it's going to sound like a commercial, but an encouragement. One week from today, Lord willing, our spiritual enrichment series begins. This is an annual event. Most of you know that. Uh, Azalea City Congregation is hosting it this, this time, February 18th through 21st. It'll begin, Lord willing, a week from tonight, 6 p.m. at the Azalea City Church Building. So we'll not worship here. We'll uh, encourage everyone to come out, go out to Azalea City to worship with Christians from all over the area. And there'll be evening sessions, Monday through Wednesday, beginning at 6.30, and also morning sessions beginning at 9 and running to, to just past noon. Uh, there are brochures at the Welcome Center. Please uh, avail yourself of every opportunity, and I'm going to tell you some reasons why. Number one, because it gives us an opportunity to emphasize the unity among our brethren in Christ in this area. B.P. Black began this spiritual enrichment series, and that's the title he gave to it. Not a lectureship, but a spiritual enrichment series that we may be enriched as we come together, and, but also deepen our unity within the family of God among the congregations here. The second reason is the Word of God is going to be taught. If you look at the brochure, you'll see the topics, you'll see the focus is, is on God. And so having, studying together, fellowshipping together, it's going to renew our focus and deepen our faith. Third reason is you'll have the opportunity, we'll have the opportunity to get to know and love other brothers and sisters in Christ that are not members of the Creekwood family. And I love that, and I know you do, to know of other brothers and sisters and so that when we meet them again, we can... Hopefully call them by name and know of that common bond that unites us. I put out an email to several preachers in the area, and I included this point, that if you'll bring an empty bucket with you, I promise you, you'll be filled. And one uh, gentleman that I don't know that well emailed me back and he said, are you talking about a literal bucket? I said, no, I'm using that figuratively, but... If you'll bring an empty bucket, in other words, anticipating being enriched and filled with more understanding of God's word and having a deepened appreciation for fellowship, you're going to leave filled uh, and ready to share those blessings with others. So please pray about this event and plan to attend as much as you possibly can. All right. The theme for that is Behold Our God. And our theme for Creekwood this year that we're exploring is very similar, I Am, the Great I Am. And we've been asking this question and seeking to answer it scripturally, who is the Great I Am? 
who is the great I am. Tucker last Sunday preached on the lesson, God is love. So that God in his very essence is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. But we also know that Jesus came to reveal the Father, to explain God, John 1, 18. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, verse 9. And so we would expect to see if God is love, then we study the life of Jesus and we're going to see the love of Jesus that helps us understand the love of God. And that's what I want to explore with you for a few moments this morning. I invite you to turn to John or look up John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says. The command to love it was not new when Jesus made these words. In fact, Love was emphasized in the Old Testament. Let me show you one passage. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, this is in the law of Moses, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You'll remember that Jesus was also asked the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And in one a gospel account, he gives the answer, the other, he asks for the answer. But the answer is this. The first and foremost commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang the whole law and the prophets, Jesus says. So the command to love is not new. Even the command to love others as we love ourselves is not new. It was stated in the Old, Old Testament. So what's new? A new commandment I give to you. Here it is. That you love one another as I have loved you. That's the new degree. It's not just loving one another as we love ourselves. But it's loving one another as Jesus has loved us. So, question. How has Jesus loved us? I want to stay in John chapter 13. Go back to the first part. To a very familiar story to all of us. But one that I hope will never grow old. And will always seek to deepen our understanding of what Jesus did on this occasion. The setting is... Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. In just a few hours, he's going to be crucified on the cross, the greatest demonstration of his love. But he has a lot to say to his apostles. In fact, what he says to them is found in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then he prays a long prayer that's recorded for us in John 17. But this is like his last opportunity before the crucifixion to say some things to his apostles that are not only, not only deep on his heart, but things they need to hear and to understand. But in that setting, in the upper room, when he's gathered with his disciples, before he says anything, he does something. 
notice the, the setting with me, beginning in verse 1 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that, his, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Before Jesus says anything, he does something. But notice that the motive for his actions, not only is he teaching them a lesson, but he's demonstrating his love for his apostles. God is love, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Jesus is love. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. So I want to highlight four things from John chapter 13, four descriptions of Jesus' love so that we can understand how God loves us, how Jesus loves us, but then how we're to love one another. And the first thing I want us to see is that the love of Jesus was a selfless love, a selfless love. Verse 3 really grabs my attention every time I read it. Jesus knew who he was. And notice what John says about him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he's the real master of the, of the universe. He rules over everything. That's who Jesus is. That's his greatness. He had come from God. Jesus knew he had come from God. He had been, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1, verse 1. Jesus was deity in heaven, eternal. He had come from heaven to this earth. He knew that. And he also knew he was going back to heaven. He had come from God and was going to God. And when he would go, when he would ascend back into heaven, he would experience once again the glory that he had before he had come to this earth. John 17 and the great prayer that he prayed, O oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He had experienced it, came to this earth, lived as a man, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and ascended back, and he knew that when he would go back to the Father, he would experience that glory again. Jesus is God in the flesh. He knew who he was. And he knew that if there was anybody that should have been washing feet or have his feet washed, it should be Jesus. Luke tells us in this same context that the disciples had been arguing again over which of them was the greatest. And if that was going on, if they're arguing about which of them was the greatest, which of them is going to lower himself to do this menial task of washing everybody's feet? Jesus knows what's going on. But he 
is selfless in this demonstration of love. So verse four, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let's go to Philippians 2 for a moment. But keep this picture of what Jesus is doing in your minds as we read this text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be selfishly held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being found, being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, on the cross. Here's a picture to help us with Philippians chapter 2. John tells us that Jesus took off his outer garment. Let that symbolize, in a way, what Jesus gave up when he left heaven to come to this earth. He took off, as it were, the robe of glory that he had. And we can never fully comprehend what that is. But he took off the robe of glory and he clothed himself with human flesh. But not only that, he put on the towel. I envision putting on an apron, taking the suit coat off and putting on an apron ready to serve. That's what Jesus did. And what Jesus did, the greatest person in the room humbled himself. See, real humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Listen to this statement. Real humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself. That's why I want us to look at John 3. The Father had given all things into His hand. Jesus had come from God and was going back to God. But this is the one who humbles Himself and washes his disciples' feet as a demonstration of his love. Jesus isn't thinking about himself. He isn't, he isn't thinking about how he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's thinking about his apostles and wanting to show them that he loves them and at the same time teach them a lesson I'm sure they would never, ever forget. He was selfless in expressing his love. If you're to love as Jesus loves, your love, our love, must be a selfless love as well. Adrian Rogers uh, made this statement. There's nothing as empty as a self-centered life. There's nothing as empty as a self-centered life. You see, when we're self-centered, that's a... When we're self-absorbed, that's the, that's the path of, of misery. There's nothing as empty as a self-centered life. But then here's the rest of the quote. But there's nothing so centered as a self-emptied life. 
Jesus wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on his apostles and expressing his love for them. And in so doing, he was selfless. Number two, the love of Jesus is a steadfast love. A steadfast love. Back to verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. And in that statement, in that phrase, there's the cross, there's the burial, there's there's the resurrection, and the ascension. He knew that his hour had come. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The Greek word there is telos, the idea of completion. He kept loving them to the very end. Think about the apostles for a moment. Who they were. And think about... uh, how human they were. Consider that among those apostles was Judas. And Jesus knew Judas would betray him. But he washed his feet anyway. He knew that Peter would deny him. He even told Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Then Peter did. Jesus knew that he would. But he washed his feet anyway. Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loved all of the apostles. No matter how many mistakes, how many blunders they had made and would make. He kept loving them to the end. His love was a steadfast love. May I remind us, Jesus loves us the same way. He'll never stop loving us. Romans 8, Tucker cited this passage last last week. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yes, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Tucker made this statement. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus stop loving you. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus stop loving you. His love is steadfast. He's going to love you forever. Does that mean that Jesus would approve of our sin, of our turning our back on him? Absolutely not. And it doesn't mean that because he loves us so much that we're automatically going to be saved. we gotta, we got to repent. we got to turn back to him for salvation. But folks, even in our lost condition, Jesus still loves us. And he longs for our return. And I think the parable of the prodigal son is a perfect illustration of that. Did the father want the son to go waste his 
inheritance with prodigal living? Absolutely not. But he, he let him go. But he longed for his return. The father never stopped loving the prodigal. Jesus will never stop loving us. And he longs for us when we stray for us to return. Adrian Rogers told about a young man that he knew that had basically caused so much havoc in his parents' lives. It was, it was brutal. And the father kept avowing his love for his son. And, and someone else trying to help that grief-stricken father said, Well, listen, if he were my son, this is what I would do. And basically, in so many words, he said, I'd forget him. And the father who was grief-stricken over his son said in response, you know what, I agree. If it were your son, that's exactly what I would do, but this is my son. And I will never, ever stop loving him. I will never stop loving him. Folks, that's the love of Jesus. Steadfast love. It's also a serving love. Because remember who this is. This is the Son of God. This is the master of the universe. This is deity in the flesh. Who rises from supper, takes off his outer garment, girds himself with a towel, and performs that menial, dirty servant's task. Jesus didn't just say, I love you to his disciples. He showed them by serving them. Love knows no job too lowly to do. So it's the Son of God who washes their feet. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, it's easy for us to love the lovable. But may I remind you again, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he even washed Judas' feet, who would betray him, the son of perdition. But he demonstrated his love for him anyway. Little children, John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A few verses later, we find that when Jesus had washed their feet, he taken his garments and sat down again. He said to them, do you know what I've done to you? In other words, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Instead of arguing about which of you is the greatest, instead of competing for the best seats in the kingdom's house, you need to be serving one another. 
as I have served you. He instructs them to serve one another, even in the lowliest of ways, and he's speaking to us as well. Because you see, there's no place for pride when we're practicing this type of servitude. Jesus' love was a serving love. And finally, Jesus' love was a sacrificial love. In the, in the upper room discourse, as some call it, uh, again, that covers four, chapters 14 through 16, Jesus would later say this. This is my commandment, John 15, verse 12, that you love one another, here's that degree, as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down one's life for his friends. No greater love than that. And what was Jesus about to do but exactly that? He was giving them a preview of what he would do on the cross. Not only did he love them so much that he would wash their feet when they were too proud to do it themselves. He would even go to the cross to die for their sins and for ours. Galatians 2.20. I think I'm going to teach a song of Galatians 2.20 to the nursing home residents this afternoon. and It's the way that I've committed uh, this verse to memory. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I but who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that text, could have used plural pronouns. We have been crucified with Christ. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. But yet Paul is being intensely personal. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. He personalized it. So must we. When you think about Paul, Saul, who at one time thought it was God's will for him to persecute Christians to death. When Christ stopped him, confronted him, and revealed who he was. Saul was crushed. He was penitent. He was praying. And ultimately he was told how he could have his sins washed away. Because Saul found out that when Jesus went to the cross. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for Saul's sins and for our sins. And so Saul who became Paul personalized that. And says of Jesus that he was proclaiming to everybody that he loved them and died for them. On this occasion, he says, he loved me. And he died for, he gave himself for, for me. Folks, we got to personalize it. And under, in order to understand just how much God loves us, how much Jesus loves us, you can say to yourself, he loved me. 
and he died for me. I don't deserve it. But that's how much he loves me. John, who heard Jesus in the upper room and saw Jesus' demonstration of love, he understood the implications of how we're to, un how we're to love one another. By this we know love. How, John? Because he laid down his life for us. But then he makes this application. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, by this kind of love, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. How did Jesus love us? How did Jesus love us? He was selfless. He was sacrificial. He was serving. He was steadfast. That's love. And that's how much Jesus loves us. So let's love others like Jesus loves us. If you've never responded to the great love of Christ as he demonstrated by his life and his teaching and even in his death, it's that kind of love that's the supreme reason why someone would desire to give their lives for Christ. If that's your desire this morning, if you're ready to obey the gospel, if you're ready to, like Saul, have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, Having turned from sin and repentance, you're ready to confess Jesus. We can baptize you into Christ so his blood can wash away your sins. And you can know, and you can say with Paul, Jesus loved me. He died for me. And now I know that my sins are washed away by his blood. If you need the prayers of the church this morning, we invite you to come and let us pray with you and for you. But may we all resolve, because God is love and Jesus is love, and, and we see a little bit more about how much God and Jesus love us. Let's let that kind of love flow through us to others around us. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come right now as we stand and sing.